0: This is writer and game designer Robin DeLars. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Fights that advance the story. Our top 10 movies of 2017.
1: And the Ritman Occult Library. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true.
0: Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show.
1: In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches.
0: You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds.
1: And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game, without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can 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 influence the outcome every turn.
0: It's a subtly different deck builder, where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful. So you have to make good choices.
1: Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands.
0: Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or. Curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy.
1: Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution.
0: Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews
1: at atlas-games.com slash WOTR. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more in the gaming hut. But look at that. The dice have got an escalation die up there in the middle. The miniatures are squared off to have a fight. Even Peter Frampton is in an exciting bridge section as opposed to the buildup because we are in the fight. We're in the fight of our lives, or at least the fight of the evening, to advance the story because, as I've observed many times, and I'm sure Robin has as well, if you watch a musical, the song advances the story. The same is true of a fight in a martial arts movie and perhaps in a fighty-centric RPG, and that's what we're going to look at. So Robin, the F-20 game is, of course, uh, broadly speaking, built pretty much around the, the fight with the monster, and that... Uh, conveys at the very least the character advancement beat of at the end you've, uh, grown and improved as a person because you've got experience points. How, how, what other ways can we think of that the fight can advance the story?
0: Well, the first thing you want to ask yourself is what does the rule system that I am using think about fights? Uh, because that can be uh, quite different. As you suggest, uh, F20 getting to the fight is the reward. I remember when I uh, submitted a draft of a, 13th Age adventure to Rob Hanzo and in one of the scenes, there was the option to skip the fight. And he was like, no, no, you can't, you can never skip the fight. That's the reward. The, the players want the fight. That's that's the whole point. And so, uh in 13th Age, certainly, and I think most iterations of uh, D&D... It'd
1: be like a Showtime movie where they just hold the cheerleader car wash and nothing untoward happens.
0: Yes, exactly. Or, you know, a dance sequence where they all have sprained ankles. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's the the fight is the reward in some games, and in Feng Shui, uh, the idea is that the fight is the story. That you, uh, when you create an uh, an adventure, which you can probably just improvise, you think of three cool fight scenes in three cool places, and then you use the story architecture of the Feng Shui world, which justifies this quite readily, to connect them up into a sequence of three fights, and that's your adventure. Now, there are certainly other game systems, though, uh, where uh, a fight is a uh, extremely risky proposition that will uh, at the very least drain you of resources or you know kill you off and that it's perfectly uh, and the players want a world where skipping the fight successfully feels just as much of an accomplishment as as winning the fight so uh, before you set about saying, well, we're going to have a bunch of fights that advance the story, make sure that your game system supports you. Yes. It,
1: <laughs> make sure if,
0: you're not playing Delta Green. <laughs> yeah. If it's Delta Green or RuneQuest <laughs> or first edition uh, Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, uh, those are all about be smart enough to avoid fights whenever whenever possible. And once you're in a fight, that's a horrific situation. It advances the story, but it's not something that you- Because
1: <laughs> it's the story of how I got crippled.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, you want to make sure that, uh, in that case, avoiding the fight is also the fight, right? That, that the, uh, that there are interesting consequences from managing to not have a fight or managing to stage the fight so that it is wildly skewed in your favor and that it is essentially you know, a a massacre of the other side because otherwise it could be a massacre of you and that's always, you know, downheartening. So let us assume for the moment that we're working in a more a more forgiving fight uh, world Uh, because the the thing about those super dangerous uh, mechanics is basically you don't have to do any work to determine what the interesting consequences of the fight are because the uh, consequences are either you win or you horribly lose.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) That's set up for you. The rules do that in a rune quest will even tell you which knee you got a spear through. Right. Now, uh, however, in a game where the fight is the reward or the fight is the exercise, the systems are usually, uh, engineered so that chances are you will win each fight. And there's all sorts of, uh, material presented to you, to you as the GM in order to make sure that that uh, probably happens. So, uh, you know, you are given what kind of monsters you can put up against the party in D&D. Uh, gumshoe combat, by the way, is sort of in a middle zone uh, where uh, it makes a big difference how large the opposition is against you so that you can, when designing a, a a fight into a scenario, can either be you get a walkover over weak opponents and that has interesting results, or you may take on opponents that you should have investigated enough to know that you shouldn't be fighting them head-on so that but- it allows... it's. Um, you know, sort of in in the middle of that uh, spectrum, so uh, assuming though an f20 game where oh, you're probably gonna win, if only things are you know if things go really horribly wrong, a character dies, but that doesn't happen all that often, uh, then we have to start looking at what are the consequences of winning uh, versus uh you know so so where does the choice lie, for example so uh, how do you design an f20 fight Ken so that the consequences, of likely victory could branch in one of two or or if not more directions.
1: Well, to begin with, um, what I do in 13th age is the fight itself conveys information that by the type of thing that they're fighting, they now know more about the world around them. They know who, what forces are ranged against them. Maybe they just know, oh, these are uh, sea monsters. Therefore, uh, something under the sea is mad at us they have information as a result of the fight even beginning then as the fight progresses they learn a little more something through the magics that the things use or those special abilities because often those have a mental effect in a fight and you can tailor that mental effect to reveal things like you you know suddenly are standing on this same plateau but there are only a fraction of the stars in the sky and you're like oh I get it this is before Zeus hung all the constellations we're seeing a vision of, of the Titanic era and um, then And at the end of the fight, in addition to any solid gold goodies the bad guys are carrying, they're also carrying maybe a scroll of, you know, hey, go to this place and ambush these guys signed the conspirator who you haven't found yet. Or they're carrying an amulet that tells you which uh, titan they're on the side of. Or they're using – they have some sort of thing in their possession that gives you information as well as gives you uh, the reward of solid gold goodies and and the aerobic effects of having won a fight. So. That might also be a prisoner that they might have who you can then talk to and at the very least get a social reward by returning to their uh, hometown. But you also might get information from them and say, hey, what did they talk about while they held you captive? And it's odd you should ask that because they talked about this stuff that is a clue to go forward.
0: Right. And so the question then is whether you want to have the illusion of choice. Uh, which I would argue is perfectly fine 100% of the time as long as the illusion works, Yeah, <laughs> which it does 98% of the time. And so you feel that you've made a whole bunch of decisions in the course of, uh, as a player, fighting this fight, and uh, that you certainly have, you know, how much of your uh, resources you have left at the end where resources are hit points and the number of spells that you can't just do on demand and, you know, whatever else you use up in course of that fight, but even on top of that, you you feel you made a bunch of decisions, and now here you've got the prisoner uh, that you freed, or here you've got the map and, and so forth, and so that you feel that you have, that those choices connected in some way to your uh, getting that thing. Although, of course, this is, Ken, is your proverbial dinosaur buried in the sandbox, mm-hmm. is that, in fact, as long as they won, they would still find the map or get the prisoner. Another way to do that is to give them a choice of fights with different consequences so that if you uh you get to town you're a group of uh uh you know uh footloose marauders and uh you realize that there's a rebellion in town uh brewing and so you can either join up with the uh with the rebels because they need people to knock heads or you can go over and uh, throw in with the with the government forces and help put down the rebellion so that that first fight that you choose either fighting the uh local forces or fighting the rebels then changes everything you do in that place from then on so that the uh this fight has advanced the story not at the end of the fight with the reveal of whatever information or or treasure uh, lies at the end of it but at the beginning of the fight where you decide which fight you're going to pick so what other possibilities are there for uh fight to lead into more story when they're when they're completed.
1: I mean there's the there's the sort of very classic uh fight that leads into the story because it's the fight at the entrance to or at one room along in the dungeon. And the fight literally leads into more story because the guys standing there, the bugbears or whatever, were preventing you from going into the dungeon and once you've killed them all, now you can go into the dungeon. And so that literally is a fight that opens the way to more story. Um again, right. That's it's uh, like
0: a choke point fight where you have to win this fight to have permission right. to go on which causes a problem if you lose.
1: Right. Yeah, but then that in uh classic uh F20 that means you go back to town and you um uh you know spend uh, all of the money you got in the first level of the dungeon buying more uh weapons and and healing potions and you go back and you take on those stupid bugbears again.
0: Right, which is the classic pattern in action films where the in the first act the the young hero goes up against the superior foe uh, gets waxed and then has to go through a training sequence and come back for and it feels all the sweeter the second time around when you succeed
1: and that i would add is something that you can introduce into your fights uh, f20 or otherwise is the possibility of leaving the fight and that can be the the characters who recognize that they have perhaps over who who realize that they have possibly overestimated their own capability or underestimated the foe and they can ma- beat a fighting retreat with just by running away or with teleport or whatever or of a system in which the monsters can realize, holy Odin, these guys are bad news, and scatter themselves, because what that gives you is recurring characters, and recurring characters produce stories, so that it's that kobold that fled from us way back on the first level, he's back in the fifth level, egging on his much taller dragonkin brother uh, or cousin to to go whack these guys that humiliated him, and that produce a story, and that creates, um, you know, a known foe. And that's more interesting dramatically than just, oh, we're on the fifth level of the dungeon, must be time to fight Dragonkin.
0: Another thing you can look at is ways for fights to highlight uh, differences or conflicts between the player characters. So that if you have, uh, you know, one character who has uh, sworn... Uh, blood vengeance against uh, the, uh, the the white magicians uh, of the tower and you have another uh, character who is a pacifist who has a a, a to who is god to make sure to always always save a life whenever possible you can set things up so that you know the, there's the opportunity at the end to uh you know the fight's over but you as gm make sure that the the white wizard has a way of You know, he drinks his final potion, he's helpless, but he'll alive. And then that creates a platform for those two characters to resolve their uh, radically different attitudes uh, to life and to whether they kill this magician.
1: Right. And that I think is something that even if it doesn't exist formally in the rules, you can look at as a answer to yourself. Okay. When the bad guys get to a third of their hit points, they're going to run away or, um, uh, not pressing the fight if the good guys are running away, the bad guys just stand there and taunt them and pick up all the stuff that's fallen on the battle on the battlefield and said, "Ha ha, you dropped your solid gold goodies. You guys are losers." Right. Um, but not chase them and kill them. Yeah.
0: And when the fight is getting boring and you know the players are going to win. That's also a good time yes. for the uh, bad yes. guys to run that's, away. That's
1: another highly mechanical uh, system that you can in place Yes, when um, boringness uh, appears. Once the boring points have have uh, reached eight, you right?
0: Can... And of course, Thirteenth Age has a, a mechanism so that it's not supposed to get boring. But right,
1: the lovely escalation die, which I encourage right. everyone else to steal. And
0: another uh, thing that you can do is look at even thinking that they're probably going to win the fight. Is you can say, well, how many rounds does it take them to win the fight? Because if they mop up everybody in three rounds then the uh scout uh, who escaped at the very beginning doesn't get down to the drawbridge to then uh, pull up the drawbridge and make it much harder for them to get across the the moat or you know doesn't go and alert uh the uh creatures in the next room who will then be prepared and you can't possibly surprise them so that there is some other sort of lingering advantage to fighting really quickly and efficiently which will now for that to work, the player, the players have to know that that's, that those are the stakes, right? So they right. go, oh, the scout gets running and it looks, you know from looking at the map that he's probably running to go and get the, uh, uh, lower the, the drawbridge. Draw uh, but, uh, in order to get him, you're first going to have to go through these guys who are blocking your path. And so that gives you, uh, the players a tactical goal to go for other than just, uh, you know, winning, which they know they're probably going to do, and you can have all sorts of you know the the ball is being slowly lowered down into the molten lava, and uh you know if it reaches the molten lava before uh you're able to get to it, well then that'll blow lava all over the place, and you know that'll that that'll ruin all of your magic items or or what have you, so that there's some other uh reward not just for winning but for winning in a superlative manner.
1: And you can uh you you can sort of drill down a little deeper into that it just provide tactical differentiation to the to the fight area so that um the the bad guys are trying to pollute a holy spring and you're trying to keep it holy but that means no one bleeds in it especially not evil creatures. So you have to sort of Try and channelize the fight into certain areas of the, of the space, or you have to draw the bad guys away from the holy spring and ambush them at a later spot. Uh, anything that pro- pro- produces the the st- uh, story within the fight is something that you can use to amplify story outside the fight.
0: Right. And that's another way that, uh, even if you know because you've gone to the trouble of statting them all out that the, uh, player characters are going to meet this opposition tonight. Uh, the choices they make can determine where... Uh, that fight happens or in some other way, whether it happens under advantageous conditions. So right. And, they... and I,
1: and I definitely do that in, in 13th age whenever I remember to or the players ask is, you know, one of them will say, I, Hey, I was a hoplite. I served in wars. Um, can, do we have to fight them here? Or can we, uh, fight them up in the hills and ambush them? And it's like, all right. I guess you could probably ambush them, uh, quickly adds more opposition, <laughs> but it, it makes the, um, uh, it makes the fight. Uh, interesting from the player characters because they got to contribute to where it happened as opposed to, well, you open a door and now you have to fight this orc.
0: Right. Uh, you might also have the possibility that there are witnesses at the scene. Uh, not all fights uh, need to take place in abandoned warehouses or uh, the D&D equivalent of that, which is a dungeon. Uh, so if, you know, a big uh, fight occurs out on the street, uh, how well you do, uh, how, again, uh, you know, how many rounds it takes you to mop up the bad guy or whether you know, uh, or the number of criticals that you score or, or, uh, how excitingly you describe the different props that you interact with can all factor into your reputation in town. So afterwards, and whether know, or not
1: if, you, you know, let a bunch of bystanders get killed.
0: Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's that too, which is an additional tactical, uh, problem. Um, and you have to be careful when you're doing stuff like that, that, uh, you're factoring in, the mechanical cost of making the player spend turns doing things like shielding bystanders. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely a a thing that they, you know, do I lose, uh, you know, do I lose my turn or do I take a negative modifier in order to jump in the way of this arrow or just get an arrow stuck in me? So there's that. Or, But even if you don't do that, even if you don't mess with the the balance of the encounter, you can still say, oh, well, if they score any criticals in this fight, they will be uh, lauded as, as heroes but if they get a uh, more critical scored against them by the monsters uh, they will be uh you know regarded as oh well you fought uh, you fought very valiantly against that manticore you know you you know you're, you know roger of the hills last time he fought a manticore he bashed its head in in one blow but yeah you guys did okay you
1: were all right i mean the manticore is still I, I think he's he's not dead but he's you know probably really mad so that's yeah, nice
0: you know he got annoyed and you know and he did you know wreck the, the steeple and you know a roger of the hills would have stopped him before he wrecked the steeple but and so that uh by uh having a certain number of fights occur where others can report back can give the players a sense of uh, a reward when they do really well or of uh you know uh when they don't and so uh if, if they let the manticore wreck the steeple, then somebody would say, well, you know, if you, uh, if you want to rescue your reputation as, you know, you're, you're considered kind of lovable boobs. Uh, but maybe you, maybe you'd like to be considered heroes. Well, here I've got this map for you. And if you go here and do this, uh, you know, uh, my, uh, my friend the bard here will write a song about you. And so that allows you to, uh, fold in an awareness in the community that you keep going back to to, uh, get your new uh, healing potions, uh, that that they can sort of serve as a Greek chorus uh, that, uh A, gives you an emotional up or down, depending on how yeah. well you did, and also can lead to plot lines one way or the other. Because, again, if you're, wow, you killed that Manticore even better than Roger of the Wilds, so you know what? He's been kind of a jerk to us, actually, except for the Manticore killing. And now that we have a better Manticore killer, why don't you go and take all of the the stuff that Roger of the wild stole from us, because we think you're ready to take him on. And so again, you have a feeling that the thing that happened in one fight, uh, then impacts what happens, uh, in the next fight or even determines what the next fight is.
1: Yeah. And, and and that's sort of the, the, the goal is for the fights to feel connected and part of a chronicle, as opposed to a series of, you know, damn coincidences. It's odd. We keep running into these monsters all the time. Us being a bunch of roving monster killers. Um, add add some you know weave stuff in provide connections between the fights and between the fights and the surrounding society and that sounds very much like a summary to me robin does that sound like a summary to you
0: Uh, that sounds like you uh hit the summary in the head got a critical and you're allowing us to move rapidly expeditiously even into the next segment
1: There is, by certain unreliable and maddening account, and now, by your own dreadful experience, a city on the eastern seaboard of the United States in northern Massachusetts. You do not recall
0: seeing it on maps when you were growing
1: up? No one of your acquaintance ever admitted coming from that place.
0: Now you find yourself living within its eerie confines.
1: A city of windowless cyclopean skyscrapers. Of crumbling baroque buildings. And ruins that must impossibly predate human habitation in this part of the world.
0: Welcome to Cthulhu City. A surreal nightmare supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. From your deceptively kindly mayor of Terror Town, Gareth Ryder
1: Henrahan. And the cosmically indifferent minds at Pilgrim Press.
0: Evade the watchful eyes of cultish authorities. Pursue intrigue and action down the city's twisted streets. And defy the will of the living gods. In Cthulhu Cthulhu City. Well, it's it's Oscar time has rolled around as it does uh, every uh, late winter. And as is our regular won't here on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, we use this opportunity to talk about the favorite films of 2017. And the reason we do that now instead of at the end of the year is that we are not professional film critics who get free passes and lots of time to, uh, see all the films in December. So we're, we're doing it now. And so Ken, uh, let's get started. We have, uh, we each have 10 movies we want to talk about. This has, uh, once again, been a pretty great year for cinema if you don't know where to look. And, uh, my 11 through 20 films could, uh, a bunch of those could have also made uh, my top 10 were it not for the films that did make my top 10. And this year I feel like unusually I'm kind of all caught up. So I don't think there's a big, Film that I haven't seen yet. Have you been able to see everything with all of your gallivanting around to Sweden and so forth?
1: Um, my gallivanting has been, uh, as usual, a little distracting, and also, as usual, Terrence Malick seems to sneak films out now and not tell me. So there was a whole, <laughs> whole Terrence Malick film that I didn't even know about until I was doing the, you know, going through all films released in 2017 to make sure that I um uh, had uh, checked off everything. Although now that we do Ken and Robin consume Media, it's a lot easier to remember what movies I saw. I just go back 50 columns of that. But, yes. um so Song to Song came out, and I'm sure that it's a Malik film, and many people are now a little sick of Terrence Malek. I'm not one of them, but that may be because I've missed his last three films. So, um uh, also, Richard Linklater came out with a film called Last Flag Flying that uh, did not look particularly appealing to me when I Saw it flick by in a preview, but that may have been because they didn't say, this is a Richard Linklater film, pay attention. So, there's always stuff out there.
0: I, I didn't see it, but it was not uh, roundly praised. It, it did not have enormous praise. And
1: other things that did have enormous praise, like Wind River, um, star Jeremy Renner, and I've been down that road before, so... <laughs> I, I well, just... we, we know how much Jeremy
0: Renner we're going to hear about. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh so uh I take it that your number 10 film does not have Jeremy Renner in it.
1: My number 10 film does not have Jeremy Renner in it, no. Real f- quick, I don't think any, he's in any of them, but he might have snuck into one or two.
0: Well, we'll we'll send we'll, we'll uh, we got, have a car horn here to go off if there's a surprise Jeremy Renner. Right. There. So your 10th film. My number 10
1: film. My number 10 film is Blade of the Immortal, the 100th film of Takashi Miike. And I saw that at, uh, Chicago Film Fest and it came out. I'm sure it's around now that you can find it if you, if you look around. But in my habit of counting films I saw at Film Fest as films from that year, Blade of the Immortal, it is the based on the manga. It has a manga episodic feel to it as our hero kills lots and lots of very super evil samurai bad guys. But it also feels to me very much like a closing of a heroic narrative it feels very much like a, a a superhero narrative at the end of the superhero career so something like kingdom come in in dc or like the trojan war it, it felt very apocalyptic but all of these giant characters that moved in Mike very efficiently shows you who they are shows you the nature of their threat the nature of their personality so it's much less like a guy has a dozen fights and much more like heracles uh, does a dozen labors it has a strong mythic component uh Mike, uh continues to find meaning and and uh, and put it in his movies, which is good for him, given that he began basically as the apostle of nihilism uh, I love to see him when he makes movies that are about things that are important, and this is about that it's about uh heroism it's it's western in the way that it's about the responsibility of the of the killer it's got a lot of great stuff in it, and also holy crap are there mountains of corpses and they are really. Well piled up because again we're talking to Kashi Mike. So that was my number hundred Blade of the Immortal. My great. number ten. This is the top hundred. Good right, great yeah. for being here all day. Yeah. Well
0: my top uh my tenth movie on my right. list also starts with the word blade, but it <gasps> goes on Is it Blade with, Three
1: Trinity? Because that came out a while ago, Robin.
0: No, uh the, the next words are runner and twenty forty nine. This Ooh. is uh, Denis Villeneuve's uh beautiful, uh chilly, uh extended uh, art movie in the guise of a long-awaited sequel with uh, sort of stillness and rigor. Ridley Scott uh, apparently did not care for it too much, possibly because it's channeling Stanley Kubrick uh, more than it is Ridley Scott. <laughs> yes. Uh, there aren't many, very many people who channel Ridley Scott.
1: Weirdly, except Tony Scott.
0: Right. Well, he's he's not doing that. <laughs> I think because Ridley is an illustrator who, uh he's very surfacey. so there's, who else could think to you know, take over a Robin Hood movie and think, well, this should all be about the mechanics of archery. But anyway, uh, Villeneuve.
1: Wait for Fincher's Robin Hood movie.
0: Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. Blade Runner 2049, I thought was um, a bleak, uh, bracing, melancholy cinema, and, uh, I applaud, uh, its willingness to be an expensive art movie uh, that uh, that actually got people out to see it. and By the standards of an art movie, a lot of people saw it, and by the yeah. standards of the original Blade Runner. It did yes. roughly as well as the original Blade Runner, and I think like it will continue to grow in people's minds. It will be something that uh, people uh, revisit uh, long after they've forgotten the uh, obviously scripted uh, Oscar bait uh, of the year.
1: I uh, very much appreciated Blade Runner... 2049 for the same reasons that you did as a a two-and-a-half-hour demo reel for Roger Deakins. Give me a damn Oscar, you morons. I think it's unsurpassed. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It it has the artistic Kubrickian qualities you educe. I just simply thought that the plot, which is at least fictively important – was not up to snuff, so that is why it is not in my top ten, but I did appreciate it for all the reasons that you did appreciate it. If the
0: it. plot made sense, it would not be a Blade Runner sequel. If, if
1: the plot made sense, it would perhaps have done a little better at the box office.
0: Uh, your number nine film. My number nine. My number nine, uh, speaking of,
1: of filmmakers who look like themselves and not like other people, is Logan Lucky by the lovely and talented Steven Soderbergh. Um, his as you say, his return from the least uh, convincing retirement in movie history uh was a triumph. <laughs> I'm going to
0: retire and go off and make three miniseries. to make three movies, movies and I'm going to return
1: by making another movie. Uh Logan Lucky I, I, I liked because I am a fan of genre film done perfectly. This was a heist film done pretty perfectly. Uh The casting is incredible. He manages to get great performances out of people like Channing Tatum that you would not have thought possible, or Daniel Craig. And he also gets great performances out of really good actors like Hilary Swank and Adam Driver. He's just a great director. He knows how to do a mise-en-scene, which most people don't. When he sets a movie in West Virginia, it feels like West Virginia. And I enjoyed the fact that it was a pro-West Virginia movie. It was about how those people are better than the people that they rob from, which is kind of something that you like to see in your heist movies every now and again. So I thought that there was there was no flaws in Logan Lucky, and when a movie is flawless and by Soderbergh. Kind of winds up, you know, pretty high up in your rankings. So Logan Lucky, my number nine.
0: Uh, I definitely endorse that film, even though it did not uh, quite make my uh, list. But, and the the great David Holmes score is also a big factor. Absolutely. It's just a a really delightful, uh, fun, sort of more laid back than the, than the Oceans movies, but definitely uh, in the spirit of the Oceans movies, including a, uh, a lovely note of ambiguity near the end. For my ninth, I decided, uh, Because my other, you know, films 11 through 20 could have also made this list, I do admit to engineering it somewhat, and I looked at the rest of my list and went, you know, I need a feel-good movie. So (laughs) I went with the uh, French documentary Faces Places, with uh, the legendary filmmaker uh, Agnès Varda, teaming up with the installation artist, uh, sort of the less mysterious French Banksy, uh, named JR. Uh, It's a uh, collaboration between the two of them, but uh, it has... A sort of a surface playfulness. So basically it just shows them going off, uh, into kind of a ruralish or working class, uh, French communities outside the city of uh, Paris and making, uh, sort of, uh, murals based on his photography, which they then, uh, put up, uh, in that sort of glue stencil fashion. And, and they just sort of, it's kind of a hangout movie. They hang out. There's this sort of intergenerational, uh, playful, uh, uh, relationship between the uh legendary elder artist and, 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 you know, the, the new, uh, uh, hip dude of today. And, uh, there's th- that relationship is really fun and beautiful, but there are also moments in this film uh, below the surface that I found as moving as anything that I saw this year, including there's a, uh, what they do in a lot of cases is they take photographs of the people that they meet, just regular folks. And then, uh, create these big monumental photocopy style murals up on the wall. And there's one moment in particular where one woman who has, you know, never uh, in a million years dreamed that she would be memorialized by everybody. She sees herself uh, reflected in this piece of art and she's overcome with, with emotion at this recognition. There are also people who, you know, are really reluctant to be shown in this way, but for her, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a a really huge moment that is uh, captured on film. And there's another, sort of I think slightly engineered emotional moment at the end but this you know it something that really stuck with me and is uh providing some uh lovely uh late career recognition for the great uh Ayu when she's still around and and sharp as a tack to enjoy it and uh I thought it was uh, quite lovely and would recommend
1: it. Yeah, I, I liked it uh, very much as well. It's on my list, but not in my top 10. Um, and I thought that similar to Logan Lucky, what I liked was that these uh, fancy artist people go out into the country and meet regular folk, but they love them and they, and the film honors them and it delights in them and it honors them on their own level, not on the level of as artifacts in some outsider art collection. It was really impressive to see. An art movie take the, the actual people who will never go to see an Agnes Varda movie seriously and sort of, uh, welcome them in as part of a thing that should be celebrated in that it has a lot in common with Logan Lucky, I thought. And it was also, uh, very, very enjoyable. It was a great, as you say, hangout movie. You just wanted to sit there and eat bread and, and watch that movie for a couple of few hours.
0: Yeah. There's a, there's a moment where they go to a, uh, a road salt factory mm-hmm. and they, create a monumental mural with everybody who works there in it. and as a depiction of working class life, it's like the people who work at this factory, they all kind of love each other. there's there's a family feeling, they enjoy mm-hmm. working there, they're happy to be together. you know it's not like oh I, I live my life for road salt. But they live their lives with their colleagues and, right. and are super excited to be all in this group shot
1: together. And people that they see every day are people that they've decided, you know, that they like and that they're part of that same effort to build Road Soul or whatever. Right. It was, yeah, it was terrific.
0: Everyone one would never see that outside of the context of a documentary. Right. Uh, because A, it's not how artists generally think about <laughs> working class life.
1: And B, it's not very dramatic. <laughs> there's,
0: there's, it's, there's no conflict. But here it's presented in a context where you're able to enjoy that and feel that. And, uh, you know, as uh, my late mother-in-law used to say, it's a nice story about nice people.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and it was nicely done. It was a very lovely film. Uh, number eight. My number eight is the opposite of all of those things. It is They Remain, uh, made by Philip Gillette, based on a Laird Barron short story. 30. And those of you who are awoke to Lord Baron are going, oh, this is not going to be a nice movie about nice people. This is a movie about two sort of researchers who are off in the woods somewhere, possibly in the Pacific Northwest, possibly in Appalachia. The movie sort of never quite explains where it is, maybe upstate New York, somewhere where there are dark woods, where there was a cult killing a while ago. But... It's just about what happens to the two stars as they're out in these creepity woods. And uh, for a while, I don't know if you know the, the the movie The Ritual, but everyone on my feed was loving The Ritual, and they thought, oh, The Ritual, The Ritual, The Ritual. The Ritual was all right, and it had a great monster, but it was not They Remain. If you want to go to The Creepity Woods, go to They Remain. It's like repulsion, only in the woods. Uh, William Jackson Harper, who uh, burst onto our radar, I think, with The Good Place, plays one of the researchers sort of our viewpoint researcher, and he's incredible. Rebecca Henderson is the foil to him, also incredible. But the whole notion of we're not sure who is the viewpoint, what is the viewpoint, what's going on, that uncanny feeling extends for pretty much up until the last shot of the film. And you can't get that uncanny feeling normally in anywhere in a film. And to get it for a whole movie, uh kudos to Philip Gillette. Also super kudos to William Jackson Harper and Rebecca Henderson. It's a, it's, it's a two hander. There's no other people in the damn woods. Um, and it's just them slowly responding to the creepiness. And it's really, really great. A perfect tone all the way through. It's a great movie and it may or may not, um, have come and gone to one art house theater somewhere in 2018, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, they Remain is my number eight.
0: I think it's not quite out yet. I, I, do, I don't see a release on a date for it on IMDb. So here's where we, every year we have to note that as game designers, Ken and I follow different rules. I follow the standard critics rules of film festival releases don't count. And you laugh in the face of, of such strictures.
1: I do, because what if I saw a film at a film festival that then doesn't get released? Do I not tell people? That's not me.
0: So uh, my number eight uh, was released. Uh, it did <laughs> oh. appear in a theater because I saw it at a screening, but it was mostly released on Netflix. And that is Okja, Okja. Uh, The new Bong Joon-ho movie uh, written with uh, the uh, English writer John Ronson, uh, better known for his uh, nonfiction like uh, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Uh, this is the uh, story of a, a young girl and her giant uh, bioengineered uh uh, quasi bovine giant, uh, guinea pig pig creature and, uh, how the, uh, the evil corporation, uh, wants to take possession of her, uh, of her friend in order to, uh, serve him up because these creatures have been designed, uh, for their, uh, delicious uh, taste qualities uh, not for their companionship. Uh, this is a, I guess if there's a common thread among a lot of the films on my list, it is, uh, films from directors who show a mastery of cinema and if you can't quite explain what it is that they're doing that's the mark of a great director because the the elements of movie making from the image the composition to the pacing to the editing to the music and the performances are all coming together in a way that you can't quite uh unpack in this case it's not mysterious to see what's uh, going on in this film this is a film that uh, again something i value it goes places that the uh its three acts are quite different from one another. Uh, the first act in particular takes some real pacing risks by being sort of slow and idyllic and not necessarily seeming to advance all that much until, boom, uh, the uh, second act begins with this exhilarating chase uh, sequence that just really shows Bong's mastery of the kinetics of uh, cinema. Among the risks taken that this Starts to take on a satirical overtone later, particularly through through some really big performances by Tilda Swinton once again playing <laughs> playing weird twins. I don't think we're quite at the point yet where Netflix movies are getting the attention they warrant when they are worthy of attention. I it's think almost one, as though the
1: Hollywood press has some sort of vested interest,
0: <laughs> or or just you know people don't pay attention in the same way. But although Mudbound, I think may be the one that sort of has broke uh, broken through a bit, but before you uh, go to Netflix to dial up Mudbound, uh, check out the vastly superior Oakja.
1: Yes, I um, actually am going to blame Black Panther for the reason I did not watch Okja last night. Um, I thought, gosh, I should watch Okja before we do this recording, just so I can see if it's in my top ten. And Bong Joon-ho is a magnificent director, and it had an excellent chance of being in my top ten. But instead, I watched Marvel Civil War because I'd gotten all Black Panthered up <laughs> from seeing Black Panther. So uh, well. that's my fault. I blame myself. Uh I don't blame uh Boonjong. And, and Ryan
0: Kugler for Panthering you.
1: I and I do blame Ryan Kugler. He uh shares a good chunk of the blame, but I just I wanted some more Black Panther and that was how I could get it. So that's on me. But I'm sure uh Okja would have been uh in my top twenty at least, just on the basis of Bong Joon-ho and Kinetic Pig Chase and possibly in my top ten. So I,
0: mean, I would bet that as well, but uh, I don't know what your number seven is.
1: No, you do not. And again, it is a film I saw at a festival. It uh, was selected as the Estonian entry for best foreign language film, uh, but was not nominated by the filthy academy. So the heck with the academy. They were wrong, wrong, wrong. My film is November by Reiner Sarnett, an Estonian fairy tale movie, black and white, gloriously shot, just amazing richness in the black and white and it's a, a fairy tale movie in that there are literally fairy tale happenings. There's a werewolf girl who loves a boy who loves a baroness, which is what you have instead of princesses in Estonia. Um uh, There's the plague shows up as a as a. F- thing. There's these sort of weird magic uh, uh, automata or robots called Kratts that you build by sacrificing your soul to the devil, and sometimes the devil is fooled, and sometimes the devil is not fooled, and there's so much going on, and it's so rich and beautiful, and it's all in service to this really nice, uh, not nice and that it's horrible because it's a fairy tale, love story, but this very basic human approachable love story is at the center of everything, while still being just a visual spectacle, the likes of which you don't get to see, maybe you get to see it all the time in Estonia, but in America, you get to see it when you watch November and pretty much no other time.
0: My number seven film is also in glorious black and white. And, uh, is it November? It is France. Uh, that is spelled as, uh, F R A N T Z or Z, depending on where you're listening to this. Uh, this is a film by Francois Ozon, uh, the French director. This is mostly in German, uh, and it's, an adaptation of a Rastand play that uh, Ernst Lubitsch also filmed way back when. And, uh, it's set, uh, in 1919. So a, a Frenchman comes to visit the German family of his, uh, friend, his German friend who died during the war. And, uh, or is he, this is one oh. of those, or is he who he seems movies? Mm-hmm. It's a sort of a, a bit of a, a slow burn not that it ever explodes into an action movie or anything but it's um uh, tonally if you think of sort of hitchcock's more romantic less overtly suspenseful films like uh you know rebecca or, or vertigo it has that sort of sense to it the cinematography is noteworthy because almost no one photographs black and white properly these days uh the classic hollywood style if you want to Make it look like that. You've got to flood it with light, which mm-hmm. uh, cinematographers are not accustomed to doing. I don't know how the heck you do it now. And well, I don't know how you do it anyway, because I'm not a cinematographer, <laughs> right. but there's got to be an additional challenge of doing it on digital. There's not which just is a filter you can turn on to suck up light right. um, and so, and to get it to look right uh, is difficult, but this is um, a, uh, it, it becomes a really powerful, uh, interesting, uh, sort of tonally subtle uh a suspense drama that uh I found extremely uh rewarding and uh it's one of the more obscure uh titles on my list, possibly the most obscure title. Possibly
1: in that and I so haven't I would heard of it.
0: Recommend uh that people track that down. Ken number six.
1: Number six. My number six is also a black and white film, although it's in color because it is Get Out <laughs> Uh, directed by Jordan Peele, his first directing effort out of the box. Uh, everyone has, uh, nominated it for Academy Awards and loved all over it. So I'm not sure what more I have to say, except, uh, yeah, it is a really great horror film and a really great horror film is a, is a welcome thing at any time. And especially now, I think a really great horror film that sort of reaches back into that sixties, seventies. Uh, maybe John Carpenter was doing it in the '80s, but that very much, hey, let's take a thing that no one wants to talk about socially and make a film only about that. Uh, way that horror can do and that almost nothing else can do effectively. Um, it's uh, great performances, obviously, by Daniel Kaluuya, by Allison Williams. Uh, words that would never have come out of my mouth. Uh, I would have thought, but there you go. Um, the great Catherine Keener is note perfect as one of the uh, white folks in the film. Um, it is just a uh, really, really good even, and it works so well, even when you know what's going to happen, you're still riveted to watch it happen. And that's something you don't get even in uh, many good horror films, because the, what's going on has to tilt over and, and be the reveal that shocks you with this. You sort of know what's going on almost from the get go. And sure enough, the reveal just makes it worse and worse and worse. It's a terrific film on every level. Uh, Jordan Peele deserves all the credit that he's getting. Um, uh, the, the, the first act or the first act, not the first act, the first scene that's sort of cold open is literally perfect. It's like an eight minutes of perfect film. The film doesn't live up to that, but nothing could. It's really terrific. Also, I want to call out Betty Gabriel who plays, uh, the Armitage's maid, um, for a real, Defining character turn. If this were, if there were any justice, she would be getting flooded, uh, but sadly and also, uh, typecast to play the weirdly nervous maid in everything because she was amazing in that and really a strong element of the second act. So great, great, great job for everybody. Get out. If you didn't see it if you're one of the nine people who hasn't seen it yet, rush out and see it.
0: Well, uh long-time listeners know that it's a tell when one of us lists a film and the other doesn't comment on that mm. film. My number 6 mm. choice is The Big Sick directed by Michael Showalter. This is a naturalistic uh romantic comedy uh based on the real life of uh comedian Kumail Nanjiani who also stars and his wife Emily Gordon. It's uh, you know, that Famous, uh, meet cute and then one of them falls into a coma love story that we've all seen a zillion times before. Uh, this is, uh, has that sort of sense of reality to it that we know from Judd Apatow who produced the film, uh, where it's uh, based on, uh, real emotions and real situations that are then heightened to show you bits of real life that shock us with the recognition because we don't normally see those in films and that the fact that it's a cross-cultural couple is just you know, one of the many things that is in this movie that you see every day that feels real, that you never see reflected in the artifice of uh, the screen. gianni uh, it's a real star-making performance for him. Uh, Zoe Kazan, who uh, plays his uh, uh girlfriend, who uh, uh, is uh, based on Emily Gordon, uh, is also really lovely. And as her parents, Holly Hunter is as great as you would expect her to be. And Ray Romano, you may be surprised by how great he is. He's not it's a breaking out of his persona at all, but it's really, uh, you know, deep, touching performance in which both of them are, uh, sort of, uh, torn between their love and worry for, uh, their daughter and also seeing this guy who actually had broken up with her before she, uh, fell into a coma, uh, with, uh, a degree of suspicion. And it's, uh, on another, uh, a list of generally dark films, it's another affirming and fun film that, uh, deserved all of the accolades uh, it got. Well, if we're going to get accolades, we're going to have to uh, uh, please one of our lovely sponsors and then head on back uh, for the rest of our lists. Love beautiful, evocative fantasy maps redolent of medieval Italy? In
1: sales technique, we call that an invitation for the listener to say yes.
0: Because the latest Ask the Gown Kickstarter has what you seek. The Summerland City Map Project.
1: Navigate Joe Devers' World of Magnumund, the setting for the Lone Wolf gamebooks.
0: Made by cartographer Francesco Mattioli in close collaboration with Joe. And with
1: Vincent Lazzari, devoted keeper of the Lone Wolf flame.
0: Born of Francesco's dream of creating city maps celebrating Lone Wolf and medieval Bologna.
1: Are you saying that he based them on Earth?
0: That's a yes-sayer of the saying, base it on Earth. Why, then,
1: even if Lone Wolf is not your deal, you could use these stunning maps as a resource for any medieval or
0: fantasy setting. You could not have said it better yourself.
1: Choose between a single map of Homeguard
0: or the collection of all ten maps. Follow the link in the show notes to the Summelum City Map Kickstarter. Fight your way to the third act alongside such dowdy Patreon backers as... Ben Dilworth. Ben White. Volpine. Sean Mulhern. And Chris Leiden. Okay, and we're back. So, Ken, your film number five.
1: My film number five is uh, an example of how I get to bend the rules when it suits me. This movie <laughs> came out in 2016. It's a 2016 film, but it was released in America in 2017, which is when I saw it. Ken, so, I hate to
0: break this to you, but you are not bending the rules. You are following the
1: rules. I'm following, but I'm bending my own rules that don't follow the rules in order to follow these rules.
0: Okay. Proceed. Proceed.
1: I shall. Just for you. Uh, this is The Girl with All the Gifts, which is the best zombie film since 28 Days Later, and I suspect if I watch them back-to-back, it might be the best zombie film since maybe Night of the Living Dead. It is really good, and it is uh, one of those movies that as you're watching it, it doesn't quite have the division into acts, but it has very much different tones and different moods as it goes through the action and every time it changed tones I was thinking well this is where it will break down it can't be good at both of these things oh nope there we are it's um uh, it it retains that quality of eeriness as opposed to creepiness that you want in a proper post holocaust movie um and maintains it super well through some very uh real uh, uh, carefully drawn characters. Again, something you don't often see in a zombie movie, but here they are. Uh, and terrifically acted by Gemma Arterton. Again, someone you would not have expected to be a great actress, but there she is. Patty Considine, who is a great actor and is also great in this. Um, and Glenn Close in a turn. And I'm not usually one of those people who says, Oh good, Glenn Close is in a movie, but holy crap. She does a great job. Uh, and the story based on a novel that I haven't read by, uh, uh Mike Carey is very, it's it's thoughtful in a way that zombie films often aren't in that zombie films are happy to ask one big question and no more. This one has got at least another one up its sleeve. I thought The Girl with All the Grifts was terrific. It was a best of breed, best of show, best of genre film. And when a movie like that comes out, I try and sneak it onto my list. Even if I have to follow Robin's rules to do it.
0: Uh, my number five film is The Girl with All the Gifts. Yay! Which is like Cole McCarthy. I, uh, love this as well. Uh, in addition to what you said, and I think I would say that it goes, it, it does actually have very distinct acts that it moves between, right? The first act where. Yeah.
1: I, I, you're right about the, the, the first to second act changes is, is very strong. You're right.
0: Yeah. Um, and the, the, it is true that the shift in between two and three is, is, uh, more a shift in perspective as the audience member as to, uh, what's going on and, and where, how you feel about that than a, as clear a break as, as between one and two. But, and this is another one of those films that, you know, the thing that makes it great in the canon of zombie films is also just the degree again of a subtle mastery exerted by McCarthy in, in making this film in a way that, you know, this could have easily with the exact same script been good or very good, but instead it's a masterpiece just because of the 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 level of the execution. And I'd also uh we'd be remiss not to mention the performance of Senia Nanua as that's the true. little little girl uh the titular a, girl with all the gifts. The, the titular girl with all the gifts, meaning that uh she is uh she is a zombie who still has her identity and that's uh that's a big deal. Uh so I would uh Definitely agree with you, Ken, that it's, uh, it's number five, and also I thought it's just a, just a darn masterpiece. I really loved it. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, check it out. Ken, number four.
1: Uh, my number four is, as it often is, somewhere in my top ten, will be the best western released in a given year. And this year, the best western is so not Christian Bale's Hostiles. It is, in fact, James Mangold's Logan, uh, the last movie in the Wolverine series, regardless of however, however many other Wolverine movies there are, because it is about the end of Wolverine. And, uh, Wolverine, of course, would be the titular gunfighter in the film. Uh, Patrick Stewart plays Professor X, who is dying. Uh, Logan is also dying. The world of superheroes and mutants is dying. The world is dying. It is... Uh, the, the dying of the frontier recast is the dying of a world, which is something that westerns don't often get to do if they're not about mutants, but in this case, it is.
0: It's an elegiac revisionist superhero movie. It's an elegiac revisionist superhero
1: movie, but it's a straight up western. And, um, uh, like I often say to make a, a great superhero movie, make a great other movie and add superheroes to it or make it about superheroes. In this case, uh James Mangold made a great Western, and he specifically calls out the fact that he's doing Shane by having the characters watch Shane in the movie, just for the people in the back background yeah. who didn't get it, um, and says, all right, I have now set Shane as my benchmark. Let's see if I get there. And f- Modulo Superheroes, he absolutely gets there. That's not something most people do when they're trying to make a straight-up Western. So thumbs up to James Mangold, thumbs up to Sh- uh, Shane, and claws up. To uh, the lovely and talented Hugh Jackman, who once more reaches down inside of himself a a career he never, I'm sure, thought in a million years would happen and turns in the performance of a lifetime as frickin Wolverine. So there we are. Uh, just an astonishing thing to watch. Just really moving, really powerful. Uh, I mean, it's an adult movie in more senses than just the hyper violence. The 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 emotion of watching him watch Professor X die, even as we know what's happening to him, is it's overpowering. It's yeah, very the, very the strong. The two
0: hander scenes between uh those two actors are, are really splendid. Yeah, it's so um, good. I, it did not make my list, but easily could have. Big thumbs up for me as well. Uh My number four is Baby Driver uh, by Ooh-hoo. Edgar Wright. Uh, and, uh, this, uh, really epitomizes to me an example of the, just the sort of mastery of cinematic elements and how it can elevate, uh, what is otherwise would be, uh, in other hands, a straightforward genre film into, uh, masterpiece territory, particularly in this, uh, through the much remarked upon combination of, uh, synchronizing the music with the action sequences and not just uh, any old action sequences, but practical car chases with real practical cars. And so the combination of the stunt work and the performances of the people really in the cars when they're doing this and the genuine metal cars and not the all the CGI vehicles that you see in a Fast and Furious film. Uh, there's uh, a star-making performance from Ansel Elgort. Uh, there's a, uh, it has, without telling you what, it's a heist movie with an ending that doesn't cop out because it's very difficult to... Uh, land the quadruple axle, uh, on a, at the end of a heist film. And, uh, uh, it's just a, to me, an an exemplar of a familiar genre elements, uh, with occasional twists thrown in, uh, used as sort of a platform for a formal play. And this is really, uh, right, who already was no slouch, uh, definitely. Going
1: up a notch. I uh, also very much liked Baby Driver as a as a deconstructed musical, if as nothing else. Uh, but I also liked it for a lot of the other reasons you mentioned. I was uh, perhaps less in love with Ansel Elgort than you were, um, and I felt that the the script sort of did not stick the landing as strongly as you felt it did. But it's still in my top twenty. And as we've said before, being in the top twenty in this year means you made a pretty darn good movie. So good for you, Baby Driver. But not my top ten
0: number three what's your number three
1: my number three we will have um uh, we'll have it out here Robin because my number three is Greta Gerwig's Ladybird uh filmed uh in Sacramento Greta Gerwig's hometown about uh Cersa Ronan playing basically a young uh Greta Gerwig type character who wants nothing so badly as to get the hell out of Sacramento which is a shame because Sacramento's lovely I've been there before but Teenagers Gonna Teenage, um, it's a coming-of-age film that sticks the landing, speaking of things that are tough to stick, and even with all of that, the best thing in it is Laurie Metcalf playing uh, Lady Bird's mother, and Laurie Metcalf is every kind of terrifying mother that you have in a coming-of-age movie, in a teenager movie, in a Mom-Don't-Understand movie, while also being the most loving and powerful mother that you recognize from your own life. It is just a terrific performance for her to take all of those parts of the character, put them into a human, and then portray that human up on screen. Circe Ronan does a great job throughout as Ladybird. Lori Metcalf tops her in every scene that they put together. Uh, everyone else is also very good. There's not a inhuman human depicted in the film. Uh, the closest you get is one, one scene character who is sort of played for comedy but even then it's from a place of honesty and not a place of uh of of mockery so much um and uh you know they're just doing their best gosh darn it uh, the the rest of the film is terrific uh, the, the the story arc is is believable it's real and um it has a great ending which again most coming of age movies uh, don't manage to have either so as uh, for something that sticks at a difficult landing, uh, Ladybird is my number three.
0: Uh, well, I, uh, already devoted a, uh, much of a segment to discussing <laughs> why, uh, it is a well executed version of, uh, an inherently flawed, uh, uh genre. I, I didn't hate it, but I, uh, would not rate it nearly as highly as, uh, its, uh, fans did. So I'm in the camp who found it overrated. So my number three, I was tempted, uh, to put this at number one almost in because of its, Flaws that aren't really flaws. Uh, but this is an, a, an unruly film, a film that sort of intentionally kind of falls apart near the end in a really gripping way. Uh, but uh, something that, uh, when under most people's radars, highly recommend, uh, The Bad Batch by Anna Lily Amarpour. Uh This is a, uh, a shocking and beautiful film, often in the very same frame, in the very same moment. It's both of those things. It's uh, set in what you initially assumed to be a post-apocalyptic world but then you just later on it becomes apparent that it's the post-apocalyptic part of an otherwise normal near future world a young uh woman who's considered uh an outcast is uh dumped into this area where all of the outcasts are dumped in in the desert of uh, uh arizona and uh she's uh, played by a uh, british actress named suki waterhouse uh, and she gets the accent right, so you don't know she's British while you're watching it, and as soon as she's dumped into this area, full lawless land full of outcasts, uh, she's captured by cannibals, and partially cannibalized, and has to come back uh, from that, and uh, she goes on a mission of uh, survival and vengeance in this, uh, apocalyptic landscape within a uh, an otherwise regular world. It makes uh, excellent use of Canu Reeves as a, a weirdo cult leader. You got to have a weirdo cult leader in a post-apocalyptic uh, film. And there's an uh, unrecognizable Jim Carrey. It was literally unrecognizable to me. I didn't re- realize it was him <laughs> until after I read the credits. And uh, the, the the really risky, uh, fascinating thing that it does is that uh, the uh, lead character makes a decision uh that uh you uh have not been necessarily prepped for uh changes a goal and takes you someplace you maybe didn't think you wanted to go that is uh, uh twisty and will stick with you but just and again uh I keep saying this just the mastery of the cinematic form the compositions and the sense of pacing and control are uh really quite amazing so i would uh, suggest that uh, uh people check out this underseen a masterpiece the bad
1: batch and that also i think is on netflix now and again i'm going to blame black panther for just me not up. having seen it
0: yeah. so number 2 my number 2
1: is again it's it's uh if you've followed us for any great length of time you know that you're going to hear the names of certain directors show up in the top two top three movies all the time cuz it's as though they're the best directors in the world uh, among the best directors in the world is Paul Thomas Anderson, who made a film in 2017, so it's going to be on the list, and the film that he made is Phantom Thread, starring Daniel Day-Lewis as a couturier, and if you think there is literally nothing less cinematic than watching a man make dresses, you are both wrong and right, because (laughs) the film is about the craft of art, and the film itself sort of puts that that all that blood and all that sweat kind of up on screen. You sort of see the craftsmanship in a film about craftsmanship, which is an interesting choice for uh uh for for PTA, but is also fully pays off in the moment. Daniel Day Lewis, of course, does his terrific his his standard magnificent job acting. And in addition to all the other things that it is, it's also a film about love and romance and what those might mean uh, in a world where they are not the most important thing in the world, but are still um, indispensable. Uh, it's a great movie. Um, I don't think that, um, uh, Vicky Creeps quite brought it as strongly as Daniel Day Lewis, but one can say, who, who could? Yeah. Who could? Um, it's still, it's, it's a, it's a great movie. Uh, just the, the, when you watch it and you walk away from it, there's a, a gonna be a little moment where you're like, okay, I saw that thing. I, I guess I'm done now. And then, You'll realize, oh right, I'm I'm thinking about literally everything in terms of that mi- of that movie. I'm watching the way clothes hang on people because I saw that movie. That movie is sticking with me. And of course, when you go home to to, to Sheila, parts of that movie will stick with you even longer. So, um, uh, <laughs> Phantom Thread, a masterpiece about masterpieces, directed by a master, starring a master. What, what more could it be than number two, Robin?
0: I couldn't agree more that number two is Phantom Thread. Now I'm seeing both the advantages and drawbacks of, of having you go first. Uh, uh-huh. so yeah, this is, this is a film with, uh, an intensity of drama and mood without a moment of melodrama in it, right? There's no yeah. moment of contrivance. It's just about the relationship, uh, and the power dynamic between uh, those two people and, uh, also, uh, the, uh, Daniel Day Lewis character's, uh, sister who really runs the operation played by Leslie Mandel. Uh, she is great. Uh, I, I don't think the gap between, uh, Lewis and Creeps is, is actually, uh, that immense, particularly because she is a new, fresh presence. And so she yeah. is surprising, uh, in this role.
1: And, and because in many ways the, the gap between them is, is, you know, part of their characters that he's this sort of iconic person and she begins as sort of, uh, she's just the new one. And yes. then we see
0: that change. Yes. That, that she has a, uh, uh they both have arcs to undergo. Mm-hmm. Uh, one has to rise. One has to fall. Um, and, uh, let's see what, what did you mention? The Johnny Greenwood score. Oh, so uh, good. As always, the secret so weapon good. of a Paul Thomas Tam- Anderson uh, film. And, uh, uh, maybe this time he'll get an Oscar uh, for it. So yeah, it's just a, a lush, beautiful, uh, intense film. If this really is Lewis's, uh, uh, last movie, it'll be a, an amazing uh, valedictory effort from him. And, uh, and weirdly, the exact same through line as, uh, Darren Aronofsky's mother. <laughs> yeah. It comes out yeah. d- differently. Yeah. And yeah. it's the treat, but here, there's an example of two films that are sort of the same film. There's one's the demonic mirror, mirror image of the other.
1: Yes. Um, and Mother, by the way, uh made number 12 on my list. So there you go. Also, I suppose we should shout out to Mark Bridges, the costume designer, who, if he'd not done his job, nothing in the film would have worked. So good right. job, Mark Bridges. Well,
0: Danny Day-Lewis <laughs> would have taken over and made all the clothes. Because, right, of yeah. course, he would have he would he, learned to make clothes. To make <laughs> right. This film. Yeah, he spent
1: a year uh sewing dresses so that he could be in this film.
0: Okay. May. Well, a, a super attentive viewers already know what my number one is. So Ken, what's your number one? My number
1: one is the, uh, and, and again, normally, uh, we say, Oh, any film can be number one. It's all, uh, very differences. And, and, uh, you know, on a, on any given Sunday, in this case, as great as Phantom Thread was, uh there could be only one movie in twenty seventeen that was the best oh, movie. I know. And that I know movie where you're going with was it. Dunkirk. Christopher Nolan does an amazing job. He does his Christopher Nolan plays with time. He tells the greatest love story between man and Supermarine Spitfire that has ever been told. He shows the Battle of Dunkirk without I think ever showing a German until the very last frame, practically. That's correct. Uh it's it's an astonishing Movie about war as terror, uh, war as uplifter of the human spirit, war as a chance for a nation to come together, and war as desperate disaster you don't want any part of, all within three overlapping storylines, all in 106 minutes. You're watching the movie and you think this has to have been, uh, th- we can't have had this much movie, and then you get out and you were barely in there an hour and a half. And it's,
0: constant suspense. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's one act. Yeah, of just suspense. It's a, an amazing achievement,
1: and 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 the and the and the fact is, you know how Dunkirk comes out. You are not surprised by any of it, but you can't stand watching it and worrying about these guys. It's just an amazing movie. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I would not argue against it at all. Um, if it didn't make my top ten, it's uh, I think because I it's a masterpiece. I can't imagine ever rewatching.
1: <laughs> and I think that's
0: because it reveals what, because it's all on the level of the plastic and the like the the physical and the procedural, I don't know why I would uh, revisit it, but it, it is a brilliant film and uh uh you can put it at number one without my arguing with you. I
1: mean, you, you uh, might want to watch it because of, um uh, uh you might want to watch it because of the performance of, of Mark Rylance as uh, the boat pilot, which is a magnificent acting job in addition to being everything else it is.
0: Yes. Well, I'm certainly not slating it. It, it no, is a brilliant right. film. Uh, and my brilliant film at number one is Get Out, directed Get by Jordan Hale. Um, I, uh, was even more enraptured with it than, than you were. I did not feel a, a drop off after the, the sort of X-Files style cold open with the, uh, playing of the, uh, cheerful music that becomes uh, terrifying in context. Um, it's, uh, delightful to see, uh, first of all, first time director to show such incredible mastery of uh, the form right from the jump. Yeah. Um, the, uh, sort of stylistic comparison points, uh, would be the Rod Serling tradition of, uh, sort of horror as social satire, which we have not, uh, seen too much of lately, as you, as you pointed out. Um, and, uh, there's also in the style and also sort of the, uh, once you figure out what's going on, the sort of science horror, uh, there's also definitely a, a Cronenberg thing going on there, but it's also a very, uh, a special unique film it made even more this special if you uh, saw it in a movie theater where uh probably there was a mixed audience and the laughter has a little extra quality to mm-hmm. it that uh, yeah. is, is very much the the audience response to the film uh, is part of the film in a way that uh, I find myself less and less excited about being in a crowded movie theater these days but this is one where if uh if you can possibly, you know, if you haven't seen it yet and it's playing in a revival house or something, go, uh, see it there because there's the, the extra, uh, squirming of, uh, the, uh, the, the white folks going, have I ever said anything that dumb? I, you know, I'm, I know I'm not, uh, you know, evil uh, villains mind controlling anybody, but there's a point, there's a bunch of stuff there that you, you, well, just, just
1: assure everyone on your way out that you would have seen the movie twice if you could. And I think that'll, that'll make it better.
0: Right. Exactly. (laughs) Um, so, uh, so my favorite film of the year is, is get out and, and I'm, uh, pleasantly amazed to see a genre film, uh, up for a bunch of Oscars. Uh, as we record this, of course, we don't know uh, who's won, and I'm out of the Oscar predicting business, Ken, because... Well, they Well, the, changed... you, you retired on top, buddy. Yeah, because they changed the membership so much over the last three years. It's got like 30% of people voting this year will have not been members three years ago, so any of your past preconceptions of what Oscar voters like are out the window, because they have a much younger uh membership now, and I think we may have enough people of the generation who grew up on genre films and, and seeing that they are, can be just as much a platform for art movies as the dreaded biopic. Uh, we might see some, some surprises and some things going. So, uh, I'm certainly, uh, pulling for, uh, get out. And, uh, and I guess, uh, so folks, if you haven't seen, uh, films on this list and you get a chance to, uh, it's, I think your list is a darn good list too. Nothing I would, uh, be too shocked by yes. so we love movies
1: we do and we love each other's love of movies and we love each other's movies that we love
0: and we also love this coming commercial
1: When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, Guns An opera Uh, say what now?
0: Delta Green, A Night at the Opera Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game
1: Reverberations Viscid Music from a darkened room Extremophilia The Star Chamber And Observer Effect Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivy, and Greg Stolze These scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules
0: Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A
1: Night at the Opera, is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com.
0: It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of your It's time once again to wend our way up the cobweb stairs into the Edwardian Parlor, where waits the consulting occultist. But this time, the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky is... On the screen of his laptop, which he is peering carefully into because this time around he is here to tell us about the initial riches uploaded to the online occult text collection of the Ritman Library. Uh, Dan Brown has decided to give back to the world of occultism and conspiracy and litany by helping to fund uh, this project by a uh, Dutch library to get its collection of tomes and grimoires and uh, uh, all sorts of uh, essays and compendiums online. And Ken, you're going to tell us uh, what you uh, found when you first went splashing around there.
1: To begin with, the Rittman Library is named after a guy named Eust Rittman, who is a bibliophile first and foremost. And uh, he, his specific collecting area is Hermeticism, Rosicrucianism, alchemy, uh, mysticism, Gnostic uh, beliefs, and uh that kind of thing there's also uh all the various sort of side uh trails that you go off of that your Kabbalah, your freemasonry your anthroposophy uh every now and again you get a little bit of grail fun uh so it's lots of good stuff everything that you want as a growing boy uh robin much of it i'm afraid is in your uh most uh the category you've slowly developed an allergy to the christian hermetic category in which all of uh, hermetic knowledge is just an allegory for how much we love Jesus <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah well you know the, the kind of occultism you practice while wearing a scarf
1: exactly while wearing your scarf well there's 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 some uh there's some pagan scarf wearers now in our fallen era um I can also assure you that uh, the lovely and talented uh John d is in the the category although only one of his uh, books has been digitized. It's the Monos. Right. And this is just the
0: first batch of stuff. And right. More this is the of.
1: first 2600 of the core, uh, texts, mostly the stuff that was done before in that incunabular era. So maybe before, not before 1500, but before 1600. So it, it's, it's most of these early, uh, print books. So the, the catalog of the, of the library, the Ritman library includes things like Dee's Preface to Euclid because that's important, but it's not. As magic-y as the Monus Hieroglyphica, or even as the um, uh, works in which he works out uh, the etheric language of the angels, which has not yet been uh, digitized, just because it's not part of that thing. Uh, the Corpus Hermeticum, obviously, the first uh, printed compendium of hermetic knowledge is there, uh, translated by Marsilio Ficino into Latin. The downside to this uh, particular effort is that unless you read Latin, uh, you're really sort of there to look at the pretty pictures. Uh, that is, uh, something that will, uh, get with you.
0: Right. And so there's, there's French and German and, uh, and I guess some English text. but uh, yeah. guess what? Most of this stuff is in Latin.
1: Mm-hmm. That's what, that's what you wrote in if you were a scholar or even if you were a pretend scholar. Um, there is, uh, uh, some ample, um, uh, as, as I say, alchemy and their, their catalog is also super, um, uh, super hard to navigate. Just a little note to the unwary, but there's some.
0: Yes. And apparently they have acknowledged that and are, are working on a better interface as
1: well. Yeah. But, uh, there's, uh, Robert Flood is in there with uh, lots of good, uh, alchemy stuff. But again, also in that, uh, in Robert Flood, are matters like Catholic medicine, which is not about Roman Catholic medicine, but is about um, the work of Galen, uh, which is the official medical authority uh, approved by the Catholic Church, and how you can improve it with mystical arts. So it's kind of a medical book, and it's kind of a magic book, and it's kind of both, and it's all in Latin and is not... Um, uh, as compendiously illustrated. But there's lots of good stuff in there. You just have to sort of already know what you're going for as opposed to uh browse happily and, and hope to stumble on it. Uh, and that's, uh, right now, uh, one hesitates to say the downside of a digitized uh, version of uh, 5000 early printed books and manuscripts but it is the downside of 5000 early printed books and manuscripts because when you look at the catalog you see a bunch of book covers and no indication as to what anything is unless you already know what you're looking for so that's uh, that will slow down your browsing you have to know which authors you're looking for and type them into the little uh, search bar already right
0: and another thing that i was unable to find while looking around uh, this the site was any indication of what the RITMAN archives rights policy is. Right. Uh, Because although, uh, these books of course are, uh, well in the public domain, uh, there's the question of whether they consider their scans of the books to be newly copyrighted or whether they're being made available on an open source basis. Right. Uh, if they are, look at all those lovely pictures that, uh, (laughs) we can borrow, uh, for our web pages and, uh, T-shirts and, uh, and certainly, uh, Dean Engelhart, who has done an amazing job of creating the documents for Absinthe in Carcosa, which are eye-poppingly amazing. I would have a field day being able to use that stuff as his, uh, uh, as sources of, uh, you know, documents and handouts and, and that sort of thing. And that you can, uh, you know, pictures you can take out of context and, and reuse. And certainly, uh, so for gaming use, uh, you could, Uh, you know, if you have a color printer, you could print out any, uh, you know, subset of these pages and, uh, uh, they're in Latin. So guess what? Unless any of you players read Latin, you can say that they contain anything you want as handouts, right? You can hand them out and say, well, you, Professor Banks, uh, read Latin. So, you know, this is a reference to the, to the ghoul crypt. Uh, and make your sanity roll. <laughs> right. And also just
1: sort of the form factor, just knowing what these books look like is uh, going to be helpful to you as a, uh, just as a GM, you're going to be able to say, Oh, this is, um, uh, this book they look, is they're empty, generally um, smaller long. than you're right.
0: imagining. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have uh if you're mad at, at margins in current game products, well those these have nice wide margins too. Uh-huh.
1: So uh so the, there's uh there's a lot of uh material um just sort of in the sense of what does a tome look like? Uh, that gets answered by this question without having to go find your own tomes. But navigating within the books, navigating through the catalog, uh, it uh I suppose is very much like going to the Rittman Library would be, in that you have to know a guy, <laughs> and you can't just sort of wander in off the street and get as much out of it as you could.
0: Right, so a gaming advantage of it currently being hard to navigate is that explains why the player characters have to... uh Take some trouble to investigate, uh, things, right? So that your monster hunters, uh, you know, your research is, well, you call up, uh, your, uh, uh you dial up the site and on your, on your laptop, but it's going to take you a while to find the particular spell that you need to stop this particular monster. And, uh, uh, you can also play with the idea of, you know, what if you're, uh, what if you have a scenario based around the concept of you are, uh, Digitizing these books, uh, for, uh, an organization, uh, if we did it in print, we would have to like rub off the serial numbers and, you know, talk about writer Stan Black, who has, uh, funded this effort from the Dittman library, but at home you can use the real names. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the process obviously of digitizing, uh, magical works is, is perhaps fraught with peril. So that could be the basis. Yeah. So (laughs) that could be the basis of a, uh, uh a scenario whether it's something as obvious as you know murder at the ritman uh to <laughs> uh to spinning out a whole uh conspiracy as to why exactly you know why did dan brown make these books available first and what is that what is he of, trying to cover up what's he trying to cover up or what's he trying to point you toward and uh what are you uh, uh gonna do when you discover that uh dan brown's work is not uh is not badly written fiction, but in fact is ripped from the very headlines.
1: Yes, it's, it's badly written nonfiction. Um, the uh, the other thing, of course, is that the mechanical device that they use to digitize these, at some point, they're going to trade it out for a new one, and then it goes out into the world, and this magic, this device now contains uh, the retinal after image of all this magic, and maybe it um, uh, summoned up a demon, maybe it just. Turns anything that you scan with it into a into a work of mystical revelation, whether it was or not. And so it's going to be a matter of oh, th- this completely unrelated batch of uh, haunted um, uh, uh, anarchist texts comes because they uh, uh, they bought or borrowed the scanner from wherever the Rittman Library dumped it, and that's why all these demons are showing up in this completely unrelated thing that was ordinarily not really demonic. But they use the Ritman Library's uh, magic scanner and that'll get you.
0: Right. And uh, just while we're picking low-hanging fruit, of course, the idea that the the destructive book uh, is foolishly uh, made available to all uh, for a, a brief period of time. So that can be the Necronomicon or, you know, the first thing that my uh, players did in the Yellow King role-playing game when they finally got to the uh, full-on modern-day setting at the end is, well, let's... Let's go to Gutenberg and find a copy of the play. Well, it's not there. Well, let's try Dark Gutenberg. That's well, not there either. But you know, what if the what, what if the Ritman had it up for a, a day before they realized it was uh, it was there? <laughs> I'm sorry. Who's whose was Dark Gutenberg? Uh I, I wanna say Justin, but I, I'm i not entirely sure. Well, point.
1: I'm gonna give Justin credit because that's amazing. I yes. think that that's terrific. The Dark Gutenberg. <laughs> all the texts you're not supposed to publicize are publicized. Um, uh, you can uh, uh, go through. There is a uh, way to look at the window that just sort of shows you all of the titles and authors, at least. And then it's a matter of just going through and looking for what sounds good. So if you go to the the main library, um, uh, the 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 initial thing is just the shots of the book covers. You go to the far right the the uh, completely unintuitive glyph will eventually reveal a uh, list of titles and authors, which you then cannot actually sort. But if you just sort of page through it and you say, ah, the monde primitif by Comte Gebelin, I wonder what that looked like. Then you can pull that up and look at it.
0: Uh, right. And I guess before we go, just one more obvious plot hook is that you are the book hounds who, uh, work for the Ritmen and your job is to uh, track down the books that aren't in their collection yet. And, uh, all sorts of uh, scenarios can uh, tumble out of that, including the question at the end, is is this one that we put on the web, or is this one of the ones for the... We
1: put on Dark Gutenberg. <laughs> on, on Dark Gutenberg.
0: Well, uh, I guess everybody now uh, is about to stop listening to this episode and type in Dark Gutenberg and see what happens. So while they're doing that, uh, let's sneak out the back door, and we'll be back next week. Stuff having once again been talked about. It's time to thank our sponsors Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Ask for Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Wort. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Canon
0: Walk the red carpet alongside such backers as
1: Ethan James. Isaac Priestley. James Pearson. Uh, Linda and Mike Schiffer.
0: And Philip Masters. Snag. Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At
1: tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
0: Get ready for your next trip to 1763 with the Time Incorporated shirt.
1: Time Incorporated, changing history since Aristotle was a Triceratops.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.